This is a Timmet podcast. This podcast is part of the series On the Marge. This episode is part of the second series. Chronologically, it falls somewhere before episode 35. The title of this episode is Beaver Fever. Beaver Fever. Motivational speakers and internet memes advise us to follow our dreams. I suppose that's what Edmund Hillary was doing when he and Tenzig Norgay reached the summit of Mount Everest. But the truth is that everyone's dream is different, and it's often hard to understand or appreciate someone else's. I wasn't thinking much about dreams that day last month when Quark and I went out to see who was winning the beaver battle. It was just another typical summer whitehorse day. The morning was still cool, and the sky was clear. The air would be warm, but not hot by afternoon. All was silent, except for the occasional raven sound or the indignant chatter of squirrels that took exception to our passage through their forest. Maybe some people would dream of this. I'm just lucky, I guess, to have all this so close to our walnut crescent bed and breakfast. The beaver battle started two years ago in the fall, when beaver dammed up McIntyre Creek not far from the highway. That flooded the forest trail that parallels the creek east of the highway. That wasn't a problem over the winter when everything was frozen solid, but in the spring... The water was a barrier to hikers and ATVs. I was worried that the flood would kill off the large trees in the area. Conservation officers came in and broke up the dam. That worked for a while, and the trail became passable again. But the beavers were unhappy and rebuilt their dam, flooding the area once more. The conservation officers returned, and this time they installed a beaver deceiver. They cleared a channel out of the middle of the dam and put in a section of large-gauge plastic pipe so big that beavers couldn't block it. And just in case, they put a steel cage around the pipe inlet so the beavers couldn't get near enough to the pipe even to think about trying to block it. This was probably a quite difficult operation because the beavers had inconsiderately built their dam in a most inaccessible spot. The anti-beaver forces had to cut a trail through the dense forest to the dam site just so they could get the pipe, cage, and equipment in. For the rest of the summer and fall, the water stayed low and the trail stayed dry. However, the beavers had all winter to plan. In the late spring, the trail flooded again, and I went to check to see what had happened. Through beaver engineering, or perhaps through the action of ice over the winter and spring, the steel cage was flipped up on end, and the big pipe moved out of the way and into hydrological irrelevance. Score another one for the beavers. Over the next year, the water rose and fell as the conservation officers and the beaver battled for control of the creek. Sometimes the trail was dry, but on other occasions it was like a canal winding through the sodden forest. It was quite inconvenient for Quark and me in our contemplative walks, but this time because I was organizing an event for the Facebook hiking meetup group, I really needed to know if the trail was passable that week. Otherwise I'd have to find an alternate route to the Fish Lake Road corner. Quark and I determined that the beaver battle had tilted, at least momentarily, against the beavers, and that the trail was only a little bit muddy. We walked the length of it, because I was curious if the high water had had any effect on the big trees. We made a brief detour into a little clearing right on the edge of the creek, and it was there that I smelled smoke. Fire is always a risk in the boreal forest, so I went to investigate. I couldn't see flames, 
but smoke hung in a haze on the other side of the creek, which was fairly wide here. Quark and I scanned the far bank. At first, we noted nothing significant, but then a small movement attracted my attention. I pulled out my binoculars and zoomed in on the place where I had seen the motion. It took a few seconds, but then I noticed a person's face staring out at me, partially concealed by a beard, partially by the dense foliage. Nobody moved for about five seconds. Then the face disappeared. I scanned the area again. Just to the left of where the face had been, I could see something that might have been part of a tent or, or maybe a tarp. I couldn't tell for sure. The smoke seemed to be heaviest there. People sometimes camped in our forest. The occasional Land Rover crew on a, an around-the-world tour or an adventurous cyclist on the way to Tuck. I guess people aren't really supposed to camp in the woods inside city limits, but I never worried about it because they were usually there for a night, at most, before moving on. However, the area where this person appeared to be was fairly inaccessible. There were no roads over there, and it wasn't particularly close to any of the main trails. I had explored the area a couple of times, but certainly not recently, and I didn't think that many people went there often. It really wasn't the sort of place that any transient traveler would find convenient. So Quark and I looked at each other, shrugged, and went on our way. The Facebook meetup hike was a success, and I didn't give the isolated camper a second thought. Or I didn't until two weeks later, when Quark and I passed that same way again. We ventured into the little clearing by the creek and looked across. There was no smoke and no evidence of any people over there but it was clear that somebody had been cutting trees in the area. Beaver, perhaps, but probably not. The trees were cut all in one area, and the trunks were still plainly visible on the ground. The cleared area had exposed more of the object I had seen before. It was clearly a tarp suspended over a tent. If I wasn't sure about the regulations about random wilderness camping in Whitehorse, I knew for sure that cutting trees was not acceptable. There had been some controversy in the last year about cyclists and skiers cutting unauthorized trails without permission. One group had been fined for doing so. This was not just some transient camper's overnight spot, but maybe it was some city-approved activity. So I decided I would go over and see what was going on. Quirk and I hiked over to the little bridge and back down the other side of the creek. The few trails in the area were not very well used, when we got near the area where I calculated the strange campsite to be, we discovered a new trail leading off to the right. It wasn't worn down to the soil and tree roots yet, but it was very clear that somebody had been going back and forth across the moss. Quark and I exchanged glances. Yes, this must be it, I said. We followed the new trail, and after a short distance, we could see the tarp-tent combination through the trees. As we got closer, I could also see there was a bicycle leaning against a tree. There were several new tree stumps around the area and a stack of bucked firewood, probably aspen from the color of the bark. I was mystified why anybody would cut living trees to use for firewood. Green wood doesn't burn very easily. I stopped on the edge of the clearing and called out, Anybody home? I didn't want to surprise someone by arriving unannounced in the middle of their campsite. At first, there was no sound and no movement. I called out again. This time, a bearded man appeared out of the tent. He was holding a rifle. He didn't point the rifle at me, but he shouted, Go away! He was definitely not happy to see me. Okay, I said, just checking. Go away, the man said again. He changed his grip on the rifle, but still didn't actually point it at me. Okay, we're leaving, I said. 
I didn't think he would actually shoot me, so I turned around slowly and led Quark back the way we had come. I glanced over my shoulder. The man just stood there holding the rifle in his arms. <laughs> well, that was strange, I said to Quark as we got to the bridge. When I got home, I discussed the situation with Mara. Well, maybe he just wants to be left alone, said Mara. I mean, this is Yukon. Lots of people come up here to get away from something. Maybe to get away from other people. You know, mad trapper sort of thing. Well, yeah, I understand that, I said. I'm just not sure that hiding away on the side of McIntyre Creek inside city limits and cutting down trees is the right approach. He is well hidden. It's, it's just really strange, that's all. So I decided that despite the trees, the mysterious man seemed to be relatively harmless. And he hadn't actually threatened me with his gun. But I made the effort to walk frequently by the clearing on my side of the creek to look over and see if I could learn any more about what was happening. For the next week, there's a light cloud of smoke hanging over the area every time I checked. Twice I saw the man, once sawing wood and once just standing by his tent. I took care that he didn't see me, though. By the end of the week, more live trees had been turned into firewood. And that bothered me. And then everything stopped. No smoke. No man. No new tree cutting. But the tent was still there. After three or four days of inactivity, I concluded that the man must have abandoned his campsite. I decided to go back in his absence and see if I could figure out why he had been there and maybe clean up the place. I didn't tell Mara I was going, but Quirk came with me again. When I got to the edge of the clearing, the campsite looked deserted. I called out several times, but that produced no response, so I moved closer. Yes, there were many new stumps and plenty of green firewood. There was a fire circle of stones full of cold ashes. There was a pile of empty tin cans over on one side and several garbage bags full of something. Eh, maybe garbage. I circled around the tent, and that's where I found the body. It was the same man, same beard, sprawled half in, half out of the tent, on his back, he was wearing an army-type jacket and brown canvas pants. His right hand was wrapped in something white, where lots of blood had soaked through. Well, not bandages, but, but maybe a t-shirt. His eyes were closed. He had quite obviously soiled himself. He didn't look threatening, so I moved closer and said, Hello, are you okay? There was no reaction. I nudged the man's shoulder with my foot. That got a very brief reaction. He mumbled a few words, faintly and incoherently, and his eyelids flickered but remained closed. And then nothing more. I tried again, but this time only got the flickering eyes, not even any mumble. I had stumbled into something really weird, maybe a crime scene. So I called 911 and directed in the police and the ambulance. I checked a few days later with my friend Corporal Chris Chance at the RCMP to see if he could tell me what this was all about. Due to the rules about privacy and police policy, he couldn't say anything, but he did give my name to the man's sister, who arrived in Whitehorse on the next Condor flight. She tracked me down to thank me for saving her brother. Over coffee at the Bait Cafe, she told me the story she had pieced together from growing up with Gerhardt and from what he had told her in the hospital. She and her brother were from Switzerland. As a boy, Gerhardt had read Grey Owl's books about beavers and had become fascinated, maybe almost obsessed, by the animals. He learned everything he could about beavers. All his school projects were about beavers. He drew pictures of beavers and collected photographs of them. He wrote stories about beavers and imagined himself like Grey Owl, living with beavers in the wilderness. However, despite his real passion, 
He ended up working in a big city office when he grew up. Finally, Gerhardt could take it no more, and at the age of 24, decided to pursue his dream of sharing his life in the wilderness with beavers. With the savings he had accumulated, he took the Condor from Frankfurt to Whitehorse, found the beaver in McIntyre Creek, and moved into the nearby woods to live just as Gray Owl had. He cycled into town every week for supplies. And things didn't quite work out as Gerhardt had expected, though. Gerhardt had read about swimming with dolphins in Mexico, and figured that swimming with beavers would be just about as euphoric. He discovered quite quickly, however, that the beaver resented finding a strange person bobbing around in their beaver pond, and they didn't really like to be cuddled. Gerhardt received quite serious beaver bites on his hand and up one of his arms. Those bites quickly got infected, and he'd been drinking water directly from the creek. That had given him Giardia infection, the parasitic disease that most Canadians know as beaver fever. By the time he had admitted to himself how sick he really was, he was too weak to go get help. So when I had found him, Gerhardt was in a really bad way with a gangrenous infection and serious diarrhea. He was lucky that I had turned up right then, because he probably would have died otherwise. He was going to be in hospital for a while, and his sister apologized for the rifle. It wasn't real, she said. Gerhardt had carved it out of wood. So yes, following one's dreams is important. I'm sure John Franklin was following his dream too, when he set off to look for the Northwest Passage. Although we don't know exactly what happened to him, we do know that his quest ended unhappily. Gerhardt was a bit luckier, I guess. And dreams are very personal. Understanding someone else's dreams is not always easy. I know I don't share the Edmund Hillary type dream or the John Franklin type dream, or the Gerhardt dream either, I guess. Because, well, in Yukon, I'm living the dream already. Oh yes, and this week, the trail is flooded. Beaver are winning the beaver battle. This has been a Timmet podcast in a series called On the Marge. Instrumental intro and exit are courtesy of Kate Weeks. If you would like more of these podcasts, check out the podcast website at timmet.ca slash podcasts. That's T-I-M-M-I-T dot C-A slash podcasts.